Well, Brent is gay and Kaylin's gay. Clark is gay and Ryan's gay and Adam's gay. It's Homo Superior. Uh, this is a special Secret Records, uh, which is where some of us at Homo Superior uh, cover topics that are outside of our traditional gay nerdy wheelhouse. And today it's uh, me and Brent, and that's me being Kaylin. Uh, we're going to be talking about the HBO miniseries, The Plot Against America, which is based on the 2004 novel by Philip Roth. It follows an alternate history where xenophobic populist Charles Lindbergh wins the 1940 presidential election against FDR. And by the way, spoilers throughout. Uh, so if you haven't seen this, that's not a big spoiler. You know that's going to happen. But we are going to be talking about various plot elements of the show as well as how the show ends. Lindbergh's campaign works by dog whistling, ignorance, uh, anti-Semitic anti attacks, excuse me, and threatening the war in Europe as a conflict that would needlessly cost American lives. And all of this is told through the lens of the Levin family, who they're uh, a Jewish family. Uh, they live in Newark, New Jersey, and they become entangled in the ever-shifting politics, and more importantly, the consequences of the election. So as we start off with our secret records and even our extra issues, um, why is this the best and why is this the worst? So I'll start with you, Brent. Why is this the best? All right, so I think that one of the things that makes this really truly great is that there are a lot of um there's a lot of drama shows out there now that are dealing with dread and that are pushing every single story to the absolute brink of anxiety and um this one was no different but the problem with so many great shows trying to do this is that it creates a massive level of emotional exhaustion. I think that the thing that makes this show really great is that it pushes those dread buttons in very different ways than say something like Years and Years might or Chernobyl might. And one, one example of that is, is a very common trope that is I think almost annoying for how overused it is which is the minority person is pulled over by a police officer and they spend so much time building up to the tension that they've got to interact with the police who is going to be, you know, uh, who presents a, a very real threat, but it's just been done so many times you don't feel anything for it. And there's one scene in this where the family is pulled over, the police officer is nice to them and in trying to lead them to their hotel, but, by skipping over that initial conflict, you suddenly feel a deeper sense of dread that the police officer might be leading them into a trap. And I thought, well, that's a very, that's a very nice way of taking an original trope and doing a new version that I haven't really seen before or playing it out in a way that isn't really often done. What do you think is the best? Uh, mine's actually very similar to yours. And in fact, that scene that you're talking about is when the Levin family, they make their trip to DC and they're lost. You know, they drive down from New Jersey and they're trying to find their hotel. Um, and the police officer, you know, pulls them over and uh, Bess, who's Herman's wife, the mom, uh, is immediately just incredibly paranoid. And Herman's like, this is fine. He's just going to help us. We're Americans. We're visiting our nation's capital. And clearly, you know, to your point, nothing bad happens in that scene, 
but you feel Bess's um, just her anxiety uh, just accelerate and you're there with her and that's yeah I feel that level of anxiety whenever someone asks me for directions yeah <laughs> like look at your phone it's 2020 I, but but am I, is it going north I don't where, where, which circle did you want to go to right um, but in a larger extent I think there's been a lot of these shows um, dystopian type shows uh, alternate history shows everything from the man in the high castle to years and years as you mentioned to the handmaid's tale where they show the um, uh, the horrific elements of authoritarian type societies, uh, xenophobic type societies, uh, anti-women, misogynistic type societies. But a lot of what those shows have in common is that they uh, they often become torture porn. I remember yeah. we talked about years and years, uh, you know, several months ago. We did a secret reports for that, and it felt like every second, like the tension was just ratcheting. It's like, how are we going to top, you know, uh, this, this incident happening, like the, you know, the, the world's economy just you know, shuttering down and everybody losing all their assets to, um, you know, no immigrant is allowed to, uh, to be in the UK to like all the various bad things happen. It just feels like this is overwhelming and it feels really melodramatic. I think with the show, uh, which was done by David Simon and Ed Burns of The Wire and The Corner fame, is they keep it very grounded. And it, it adds to the dread, as you said, Brent. It, it, it makes it feel like this uh, could happen and this may have actually already happened. Like, are we in the right timeline? You know, yeah. are we sure that FDR won his third term in 1940? Um, so- Like we can't go, we, we, not everyone's gonna go back and, oh, sorry, sorry, what were you gonna say? No, I just I, that was just really well done. Um, that there's not a way that you can go like people, the average person might not go research what was happening in Germany before uh, Hitler was elected into office or the process after he was elected into office. And while this isn't um, the reality of what happened there, it is very real as to how that process um, begins. So um what do you think is the uh, worst? Why is this the why is this the worst? So I feel the show needed maybe one or two more episodes for certain aspects of it to breathe. Um, I think it was smart that they kept it pretty localized. The Levin family. Um, I think it would have been kind of interesting to see how it affected other families, and we saw that a little bit with the, with the Levin's neighbors. Um, uh, young Selden is the son, and then um, you know we we see the mom and the dad. At, at various points, but um, I think some of the resolution was felt a little sped up um, where, you know, Charles Lindbergh, his plane goes missing. Um, it's ambiguous, but to me, fairly clear that uh, uh, British and Canadian government conspired to screw with his, with his radar. So he doesn't know where he is and he gets lost and, you know, crashes. And then you have vice president, um, uh, uh, Wheeler, who's the former senator from Montana, um, he, he, he uh, basically uh, ascends to the presidency and then locks away uh, Anne, who, Anne Lindbergh, who is the first lady. And, and then she comes out of it and then she like tells Congress that they need to do a, a special election for the presidency in the 1942 midterms. That all felt super, super rushed to me. And I was like, wait, what? Did I miss an episode? Did I miss a scene? Did I miss several scenes? 
Yeah, there's a little bit of whiplash there. Yeah. And I think a lot um, of it, if, yeah, I, I was reading reviews, is um, the first three episodes really are just the first couple of chapters of the book. And Simon and Burns really wanted to set the stage. And they wanted to hit some of the other, like, you know, major, like, inflection points. But, and I think they did, but, like, the resolution in that just felt very rushed. And to your point, it gave me whiplash. Well, I think there's a, I'll defend it a little bit, which is my interpretation was that what it was trying to do was replicate how a news cycle feels uh, in our current era. And it's hard to do if you're not, like you and I are relatively politically informed. We at least know what's going on. We know the names of different congressmen and senators and who they did, who they're voting for and what they've done. But the average person doesn't. So they hear like big news point, big news point, crazy theory, big news point, radio broadcast, whatever. Yeah. And all of it seems kind of slammed together. Yeah. I don't know if it's perfect for TV, but I don't know. I also think that it like it kind of was an interesting way of portraying the news cycle we live in. I, I, I don't disagree with that. And I want to I hear about your worst in a second. But um, I, I like that they kept it grounded to the Levin family. And like they were almost um, bystanders, major, major events. And all of it was localized to stuff that was happening to them and the people around them. But that was just such a major plot point, And it felt like, oh, and then this happened. It's like, I swear to God, if I was reading this in a book, it's like, was a page missing? What did I miss? Yeah, that's that's fair. So my worst is, this is something born out of what Donald Trump has done to art, which is, which he should be so happy about, which is make it all about him. And all the people who are making art that goes against him are for, they, I worry that the people who are creating art to try and show why xenophobia is evil and misogyny and racism, it, it, all of it is targeted at people who already think these things are evil. Mm -hmm. And I guess my big problem is when I'm watching this show, I'm thinking, who is the audience supposed to be? Like, people, most people, the, the scene that rang really uncomfortably true was when Alvin was, they were listening to the radio program and Rabbi Lionel was introducing uh, uh, presidential hopeful Charles Lindbergh. And Alvin said, this isn't, uh, the, uh, uh, his uncle, Herman, was like, does he think that he's going to convince Jews to be, you know, to vote for Lindbergh? And Alvin points out that he's making him kosher. Yeah. This is about making it comfortable for white people to, or the, the standard American white that, uh, people, it, to vote for him comfortably and say like, oh, he's not anti-Jewish right. and ignore all this stuff. And I wonder like how much of this show still has that problem though, that it's like, it's ringing true for the people who already agree, but it's not really going to do anything as far as like contribute to art that changes people's minds, which well, I should put on the, it's a little unfair to me to put that on the show, but I can't help but wonder when you're on something like HBO and you're doing a topic like this, if you can't have that in the back of your mind. I mean, fair. Um, 
you know, sometimes it is a little preaching to the choir. And I think, um, you know, based on some of the things that we've said on social media, you know, I feel like there's a confirmation bias that, uh, to the people that we're talking to. I think that's true of a lot of Americans. I don't know how you fix that with something like this, except for putting it on, you know, network TV, and then all the subtleties are just stripped away. And then it becomes, you know, a pretty fantastical, you know, unrealistic type of show, and then it loses any of its potency. So if people, if people feel like um, they're getting something out of it, and they're like seeing the parallels, I think that's, that's a good thing, even if they are already predisposed to its message. The people who aren't predisposed to this message, I don't think there's anything you could do. Yeah, uh, yeah. Alter it. it's, it's, a, it's a fairly intractable problem because yeah. if, you're right. If you make it too subtle, that means that you've ground away the edges that make it interesting. Yeah. And then no one would consume it. Yeah. Um, so, so speaking about stuff like this, um, I think that uh, we should talk a little bit about the show's overall quality because uh, as far as the show goes, I think... Uh, up until the last episode, which I, you know, I've given my reasons where I think it's okay. I thought that it did a very good job of pacing itself and uh, taking, jumping from, jumping every couple of months and still maintaining a nice structure, yeah. not too obvious about what's happened in each person's life, but allowing um, us to kind of interpret how things have changed in the society around them. Yeah. Uh, which thematically is great because that's what we as human beings are doing all the time. We're trying to understand where, you know, the social norms have shifted and in what ways. Did you, did any, anything stick out to you about uh, the overall quality? Um, that were I thought it was really, really well done. Um, I thought the attention to detail in, you know, 1940, you know, in the, like in the Northeast, not that either one of us were alive back then. I think it, the show looked very lush, but also felt like this is a country that's come, that's just coming out of the Great Depression. So, you know, there's that very sort of gray, khaki, drab, you know, coloring all throughout the show without using like sepia tones, you know, in the lens uh, of, of the camera. Um, right. Everybody looks, you know, like, we just are on the verge of coming out of this, which feels very timely right now as we are inching closer and closer to a Great Depression, another Great Depression, I should say. Uh, so the quality is really wonderful. There's a, there's a scene early on that just made me, you know, just made me remark on how well both Simon and Burns are as creators, as well as the directors they hired and the actors they hired. Um, when you've got Herman and Bess, and even to a certain degree, Philip, who, who's a little young, basically just really worried about Charles Lindbergh, you see Sandy, the older brother, the older son in his room, who's an illustrator, and you see him drawing a picture of, of uh, Charles Lindbergh. And you immediately know like, that there is gonna be dissension in this family. And it is such a strong visual cue to say that this is not going to turn out the way that Herman wants it to within his own family. Yeah, I think that's a very nice touch because um, it's a really good way of showing also how someone could become enamored with someone like Charles Lindbergh, that he's a 
you know, handsome hero, you know, a pilot that like drawing him might at first just be like, oh man, that guy is just in a great pose. It, it just looks visually stunning. And in that process, you're also listening to him. You're buying into what he's selling. You know, in this world, um, Lindbergh is the first celebrity president because before that, everybody who ran, um, well, one, there was no TV. Movies were, you know, growing and you finally started getting talkies in the last, you know, 15 years before, uh, 10, 12 to 15 years before um, this show takes place. Um, but everybody who was president, you know, came from the ranks of government and they were only celebrities once they became, once they were elected. Uh, Lindbergh was truly seen as like a national hero and he captured the country's imagination uh, through his heroic feats as an aviator, plus, you know, the, uh, the saga about, you know, the Lindbergh baby. Um, and so uh, there's some very interesting parallels, not only to Donald Trump being a celebrity president, but also to Ronald Reagan, who was, you know, a movie star for a long time before he got into politics. Yeah, I mean, other than, you know, to point out, it's just such a well-crafted show. I think uh, let's, we should move into some of the themes. Uh, I think that um, one of my most agonizing themes um, that's probably one of the most prominent is the idea that someone is going to take back their country or conversely, someone is going to protect their country as it is. That different populations of people have different views about what makes this theirs. And I find it very uncomfortable because so many of those, so those two arguments, we're going to take back our country or we're not going to allow this in my country, have been used to justify very cruel and evil things and good and just things. Yeah. And I think that this show is on the side that um, the country doesn't belong to a diversity of Americans. But I thought it was fascinating that the program that um, uh, the rabbi, Rabbi Lionel, set up, the, uh, was it the OAA? Um, which basically re, um, which attempted to assimilate uh, Jews into other parts of the country. Right. Uh, kind of starts out as this, he really argues that it's this um, virtuous thing that you could say we are improving our country by, you know, sharing our cultural norms of true America. And every time I heard that, I couldn't help but cringe. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And um, I think looking at the slogan from 2016, Make America Great Again, uh, which was also used by Ronald Reagan in 1980, I know I've referenced him before. There's a sense that um, true, quote unquote, true Americans feel like their country is being taken away from them by the other. And then you have a, you can have like whiplash the other way of, uh, you know, a different side of America saying that, well, this isn't the country I recognize, Um, you know, after Donald Trump was elected, I think a lot of us felt that way. If you're gay, if you're, you know, an ethnic minority, if you're an immigrant, I'm all three, um, you know, you uh, definitely felt, wow, I really misunderstood where I thought this country was going. And um, 
there's the, uh, the scene, I think in the, well, it's se several scenes in the first and second episode where um, I kept getting annoyed at Herman for being as bombastic as he was and just being blind to reality as he was. And I realized why I got irritated with him. It's because I was projecting. That was me in 2016. And um, I was like, there is absolutely no way that Donald Trump would get elected. There's just no way I would shut down any kind of even uh, thought about it, whether in person or on social media. And, yeah. and it just was incredibly triggering uh, watching that. And then um, the scene, one of the scenes that really just kind of like shook me, uh, I, I think it was the end of the second episode where it's election night in 1940. And the night begins with everybody being content and happy and, you know, you know, just kind of very uh, gregarious uh, sitting around the radio as the election returns come in. And the predictions were that, you know, FDR would win a third term. And then the night gets longer and longer and longer and longer. And then you see that, you know, you know, it becomes a nail biter and then it becomes much more, it becomes much more likely that Charles Lindbergh becomes president and then, you know, it happens. And um, you have uh, Alvin and even Best to a certain degree who've been telling Herman, of course this could happen. You know, you don't know this country in some ways. Uh, you don't know that like he's a hero to some people and you're, you're making fun of the fact that he speaks in like, you know, three to four sound bites and that's all people want to hear. Yeah, his, his 41 sentence or 47 sentence speech, whatever. Yeah. And uh, how his friends tell him, you know, you're talking to other Newark Jews. You're not, you're not talking to a lot of other people out there. I think that there was a scene that made me, um, that, that made this kind of connection between how people view their country and their personal identity. And it was when, um, when Beth's sister, Evelyn, uh, first sees uh, Rabbi Lionel at the uh, teacher's meeting. And yeah. Lionel is giving this speech where he's talking about values uh, and what our school systems are supposed to be teaching. And he's talking about in this kind of a vague, glorious way about how our schools should be about teaching our children, you know, you know, the love of their country. And it made me think about all the different arguments that people have shut down over history because they were inoculated at an early age from differences in thought that, well, this is not my country. We wouldn't allow it to be overrun by any minority group. We were founded on, you know, Protestant principles or whatever that, that starting at a school level helps really inculcate this kind of like dangerous worldview. Yeah. But going back to uh, Herman a little bit, I think um, another important theme to this show was about the kind of question that has come up a lot. What kind of person would you be in Nazi Germany? Or what kind of person would you be in an unethical company? Or wherever the rules and order and justice aren't um, the norm, how do you behave? And I think Herman was so interesting to me because he's, he is, I, I, I hesitate to use the word, he's strident, um, 
because it's often a pejorative term, but he really is, he's the smart guy who's right and he believes in things, but he also irritates people with his personality about it. Yeah. And he, he's not wrong, but it's so uncomfortable. Uh, it's such an uncomfortable feature of human psychology that you can be right and just keep repeating yourself over and over again or bringing up topics that people don't want to talk about. And they distance themselves from you and think that, well, if you believe that stuff, you must, you're going to end up going crazy and saying, you know, all these things over and over again to the irritation of others. Right. I think there are a lot of people today who we know who, you know, you don't, you're, because they're right, it's so hard to say, you need to change your strategy, but it might be necessary in order to convince more people uh, in order to uh, fix things. What did you think about some of the other character types? Um, well, it's funny you br uh, brought up the rabbi because I wanted to talk a little bit about him. Um, kind of this whole idea of, um, you know, the melting pot versus the cultural mosaic. And, um, you know, I sort of come at it from the experience of being somebody who was born in India and then moving to the United States when I was very young and then, you know, being a permanent resident and then finally a citizen. And, you know, when I moved here, um, you know, the, the whole idea of like sort of uh, the model minority was that you assimilated as much as possible. And um, you had to, um, you know, uh, think like, talk like, act like the people all around you. And I was started by living in a small town in Georgia. There wasn't a whole lot of other South Asians uh, in, in the community. And I was the only person of color in my school. And, um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting thing because you've got the rabbi on one side and then, you know, he brings in Evelyn, you know, as his aide and then his love interest and wife saying like, you know, Lindbergh isn't an anti-Semite. Some of the stuff he said, what came out of ignorance and the way for us to deal with it is us Jews to be more American, AKA assimilate. Yeah. Uh, and you see, someone like Herman in, you know, his uh, immediate family, Bess and, and Philip, who is a little young, but still gets it, who, who feel like my identity is who I am. I am an American, but I'm also Jewish. And I don't need to change the way that I, 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 I need to be. You see the conflict with Sandy early on too, when he wants to do the Just Folks program, which is the, uh, the precursor to the, uh, the OOA that uh, the rabbi helps uh, uh, implement. But right. he, uh, Sandy is definitely, um, you know, says like, I want to be American like everybody else. But then, you know, later on in the series, we see um, like how much of a problem, um, he sees how much of a problem Lindbergh really is when he doesn't denounce uh, the anti-Semitism uh, around the country uh, when they go to try to get uh, Selden, who's the neighbor kid back from Kentucky, uh, they stop at a little, you know, rest stop place and they they get a sandwich. And um, Herman says, Ugh, bologna on white with mayo are trying to kill us. And then Sandy laughs with them. And he's like, he finally starts to accept his Jewish identity because he realizes that, that, uh, they won't let him forget it. Yeah. Um, I think that the assimilation 
Passion thing is such an interesting concept because, you know, one of the things that I really do think is great about the vision of America or what America could be is that we could have, like, we could have true multiculturalism. We could embrace ideas as long as they don't harm others and allow people to be whoever they want to be. And that's a good thing. But the idea of a melting pot is so, it's so internalized for the way we behave because i even know that as a gay person like i would i would try to assimilate the way i would talk the way i would act the things i would talk about what what happens there is that because on a personal level i want to fit in even among my friends i'm also trying to conform to this amorphous you know society which is grinding off any sharp points to make it like it, to make you like it. Um, Absolutely. I also was really captivated by um, Bess, who was Herman's wife, who kept trying to convince him to leave. And she got more and more strained by his, I can live here, I will be a, a rock, I will be a cliff against crashing waves. And I, I should stay here. Where so, he was dealing with more of the practical, yes, you might have some ideological justice to you, but we have a family that we have to keep alive. So she insisted again and again that they go to Canada. And uh, unfortunately, by the time that Herman realized that he, he wasn't going to win this war, it was too late and the borders were closed due to the um, the um, uh, what's it called martial law that was uh, put in place. Yeah, after Lindbergh, um, after Lindbergh goes missing, and then uh, uh, what's his face becomes the, the president. I can't can you remember the, the vice president's name. Oh, it's Wheeler. Vice Wheeler. Um, I want to talk think, about, about oh, sorry, go on. about that specifically because um, Zoe K- uh, Kazan plays her, and I think she's the unsung um, hero of the the whole series um, because she's got. Uh, an unbelievable job of trying to juggle um, Harmon's ego with being a mother of two children, one one of whom is, you know, this really sweet kid who just is really scared of what's happening. And then you have another kid who's getting more and more insolent and saying, you know, I uh, want to go off and do this and you were wrong and dad is wrong and all of this. There's two scenes where um, I just was an utter shock of how good an actor she is. One is towards the very end when she tells Evelyn, um, you know, I love you, you're my family, but never come back here and I never want to see you again. Just the intensity. Oh yeah, I love you, but I will never forgive you. I will never forgive you. The other scene is when um, she's on the phone with Selden and, you know, Selden's really worried that his mom hasn't come home. He's like this nerdy sweet little kid who's like kind of annoying and he's totally codependent and he's like my mom isn't home she always comes home i haven't had dinner yet and then like she just sits on her floor and tells him like you're you can take care of yourself for right now we will figure this out right now uh can you make yourself some cereal we're gonna have breakfast or dinner and she just sits and talks to him and it's just the camera's just on her on the phone and I'm like, this is so fucking intense. 
and she is such a good actress. It, like, I, it just blew me away. I'll say that that I don't want to stop your train of thought on that, but I do want to talk about that scene because that scene is truly incredible. As far as structuring goes, it was very smart of Simon and Burns to have the prior scene where she's on the phone and mentioning how how expensive it is to be on the phone. Yeah. So that you're watching that scene in the back of your head, you also have the stress she has like, someone I know is is probably in danger or dead and I've got to hide it from her kid. I've got to calm the kid down. Yeah. I've got to figure out another plan of action in case things have gone wrong. And also this is costing me and my family financially in a time when we can't afford it. Uh, and there's nothing I can physically do to help someone who might be in danger. The structure is so good. Um, there's that scene. And then there's the scene early on when um, Philip becomes friends with the kind of chubby kid whose like mom is in theater. Oh yes, yeah. And like uh, the kid shows him the, uh, like how he just goes around the city and like takes the bus. He does it just so he can figure like he can follow people and see where they live and then he can backtrack his way. That scene at first I was like, what is the point of this? It's important because then you know how Philip goes into the city of Newark to find Evelyn when she's, you know, right. the uh, OOA and, um, you know, basically says, please don't send us to Kentucky. And uh, they end up, you know, uh, it ends up like Selden and his family end up going because he says that this is my best friend. And like, you know, I don't want to leave him. Uh, and then there's the scene where Herman um, in, in DC finally acquiesces to Sandy and says, uh, you can go to Kentucky because if there's people in, you know, in middle America who are good, like the, the driver they hire who's from Indiana. Um, and he seems, you know, at first you're not really sure like whether he's on the level or not, but he turns out to be a really decent guy. Right. Vince's Herman to do that. And that was important because uh, going back to the scene we were talking about where Selden is worried about his mother being dead. If um, Herman hadn't let Sandy go to Kentucky, uh, there would he would never have met the the fam the 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 Mulganies Mulvaneys whatever they're called, um, right? The host family he stayed with, and they couldn't have gone and checked in on Selden and protected him while you find out when his mom has been killed by the KKK. Um, so the structure of the show is really 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 well done. Um, so moving on a little bit because um, I think. I think there's a lot to talk about, about different ways to try and resist and how people can become complicit. I want to talk a little bit about uh, seduction of power. Um, so in particular, I think Lionel represents, you know, the, the Uncle Tom type character who doesn't see the danger inches from his face. Yeah. But we can really see it through things like at this you know, this uh, state dinner that um, Charles Lindbergh, you know, completely dodges talking to him. And yet Lionel still defends him, still believes he's a good guy. Lionel helps create this whole program for reallocating people in society that becomes involuntary. And then Henry Ford, you know, tries to convince him, not convince him, but tells him that he thinks it is voluntary. That's like... That's the, I've most bought into this level of 
you know, power. I think another lower level is the kind of people who can pick parts of whatever's going on, pick the good out of the bad and try and use that as a justification for their emotions. So what did you make about the way that they try to show people who were trying to see the good in stuff and uh, blocking out, you know, kind of the, the negatives by focusing on things like, oh, we're not, American children aren't dying or whatever. Yeah, I think uh, a good example of that is Monty Levin, who's uh, Herman's brother. Um, and he's the one who owns the factory that ends up, he ends up hiring um, Herman when um, he doesn't, when Herman decides to not move to Kentucky for the, uh, the insurance job that he has. And, you know, it's like a year or so after, or several months after Lindbergh gets elected and he's like, look, I know you've been saying all this stuff about Lindbergh and he's an anti-Semite and all this, but look, you're still here. I'm still here. I'm making money. We're prosperous. You know, why are you still going on and on about this? And you see a lot of that in, uh, in, in America. And even before, you know, the pandemic set in, uh, I remember going home, um, uh, to Houston for Christmas and I got together with a bunch of my high school friends and this was like during the the height of the impeachment stuff so you know the house had impeached Donald Trump the senate hadn't gotten the impeachment uh, uh, um, instructions from speaker Pelosi yeah and I remember sitting at dinner with some of my high school friends and you know one of my friends said you know you know Kalen tell me why I should care about this um, because honestly um, I go to work every day I've got two kids I've got a mortgage, you know, um, I got to make sure that, you know, I can put clothes on their back and feed them every day and pay, you know, make sure that they have a roof over their heads. Why should I care about this? And now we're in living in a world where uh, everything this administration has and hasn't done is impacting our daily lives. And so it took a seismic event like that for people to start caring. And I think for a character like Monty, until you know, he's got something like an American Gestapo soldier, like pointing a gun at his face. He's not going to see like why this is a problem. And your point of, of, of the rabbi saying he didn't realize it was a problem until like the scene you mentioned with uh, Secretary of Interior Henry Ford saying like, this is truly voluntary. They can quit. We're not giving them any, you know, financial uh, resources for their move. Um, and then the, uh, the scene when they're listening to the radio announcement or the, the speech that Lindbergh is supposed to give. And he basically oh, said, Oh, it's super short. It's super short. And like, this is a guy of very few words. It's like the economy's good. Kids are in school. Everything's okay. And he'd like make no mention of like what happened. Um, uh, this is right after uh, Winchell, who's the uh, radio announcer who runs for president, uh, gets assassinated. And so it's like until they're in the mouth of the tiger or inside the belly of the whale, uh, they don't realize like danger was always there. And, and so, I, I feel it's like a sense of privilege um, that they don't realize like how close it is. Like, well, I'm doing okay. I, I don't really need to worry about kids in cages or you know the fact that uh, trans individuals are losing their rights left and right. Um, I'm doing fine. But then until it affects you personally, then everything just kind of goes out the window. I think that that then reflects why the character of Alvin is so uh, compelling because, you know, he, he, he 
took a risk, went to Canada in order to enlist and fight in the war, ended up losing a leg in the process, comes back, has a hard time, eventually finds some success, and he starts doing well for himself, but is recruited by the British government to help uh, with this radar plot in Lindbergh. And one of the things that another guy says to him was, you know, or the, the British guy who recruits him says is, you know, you're comfortable now uh, and you probably really don't care about what's going on in the world anymore. And Alan was a character who, who really fought. He, he was a guy who he would never stand down. He had a lot of grit yeah. and the, the trappings of um, modern society and comfort really could sell someone easier than any campaign speech, easier than any threat. Uh, and it can disillusion you to the need to like continually fight against oppression. What did you think of um, that scene then at the very end when he and Herman, uh, they're at dinner at Herman's house and he's married, Alvin's married, you know, uh, the daughter of the, the restaurateur. Yeah, the pinball, pinball magnate. Pinball magnate of- uh, Kalen, he's the pinball magnate of North New Jersey. No, he's Philadelphia. Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, but what do you think of that, like that fight between them? Because they're both talking about their points of view and then it, it turns into a shot from a shouting match into a fist fight. Uh, how did you think that, like, that went? Uh, well, as a stru structurally, I think it was absolutely necessary to happen. Um, at a certain point, um, I don't know. I, I, there's a certain point, and I think a lot of stories where you have to confront the father figure or in a different way, the siblings have to fight. Um, and there's a, there's a necessity to an actual physical confrontation. But I think that what they both represented originally was an ideological opposition and the ways to do it. And then uh, what it later became was the ideological uh, opposition and someone who feels like they've, they've paid enough for that fight. I think that I really, I, I enjoyed it. Um, it's just, it's hard to watch knowing now that there are people who are suffering from different things like PTSD, who have like different mental conditions or issues that have, are go untreated and that someone who's trying to like lead a comfortable life after experiencing hard war is then being told they're not doing enough. I can understand why you might be triggered by that. Yeah. And at the same time, if you're a person who's constantly vocal, trying to convince people, and you're just not great at it, that you feel like you see not enough people trying to do change in the world when they can. That there, there are two forces that are completely understandable and they're not fully re um, reconcilable. Um, it's, it's two hard-headed people who I don't think are thinking about the question the right way, even though they're both correct. Yeah. Let's talk um, about the ending of the show. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, the show ends with a, um, with Charles Lindbergh, his plane having been uh, downed or 
um, uh, radar somewhere else and he was possibly captured. And then the vice president um, takes over, uh, Vice President Burton Wheeler, and uh, the first lady, Anne Lindbergh, is uh, kind of accused by the media of uh, not having all of her mental faculties and that um, Rabbi Lionel has, is just acting as a Rasputin-type character who is puppeting what she says. And as a result of that, Wheeler has uh, the rabbi imprisoned um, and is put into a mental facility and all of a sudden, uh, she's, she's freed at some, somehow and gives a statement and encourages Congress to have a, a presidential election at the same time as the congressional elections in 42. And so we see the process of the presidential election uh, uh, with FDR and Truman versus uh, Lindbergh and, was it Wheeler or was it somewhere else? No, it wasn't Lindbergh. Lindbergh didn't come back. It was still Wheeler. Lindbergh. Oh, oh it's we- yeah. Okay, that's. I, I was a little bit confused because I thought I heard the radio announcement like Lindbergh versus. Uh, but they were probably saying like Lindbergh won this district. Anyways, so uh, people are going to vote. There are some people who are in high spirits, but we see that the election process is clearly being tampered with, with ballots being stolen, with machines being uh, shut down and claimed ineffective. And the show ends with, um, um, with the family sitting around listening to the election results, and it turns to the radio, which gives off a glow, and we don't hear the final outcome. I don't know if there's anything else to include in that. No, it's a very ambiguous ending. Um, you know, um, it, it, it just gave me anxiety of the things you see, like, as you mentioned, the, uh, the, the vote tampering, the disenfranchisement of, of voters, um, which we've seen happen, you know, in our lives. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about, like, how the, the book ends. Um, and I have... Yeah, how did it end? Um, so the book actually ends with FDR and Truman winning the election in 42. And, like, the timelines kind of converge. And then, you know... 42 happens, America enters World War II, stuff plays out the way it plays out, and then we're back the way that we're supposed to be. So um, that's, that's kind of that's uh, how it goes. What I think is really smart of what both David, uh, Simon, and Ed Burns did was that they ended it on sort of a, an ambiguous note, almost like a cliffhanger, so to speak, because um, this is where I think this is more than just a show and it's kind of like a PSA or it's a, it's, it's a bit of like smartly done propaganda is like, they're not letting us off the hook. Um, we have to go make the change this November ourselves of what we yeah. are going through as a country uh, and giving us a happy ending like the book does or a, 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 you know, a sweeter ending isn't the right way to, to, to end the show. So I think, I think it was very smart that they, they, uh, they let it, let, uh, they didn't let us off the hook. Um, I am still wondering about the actual legality of making a midterm election be a presidential election. I don't know how they got around that. I guess if I read the book, maybe, you know, we figured that out, but, um, um, I don't know. Maybe yeah, that's, a, that's a very odd thing because even if it is the vice president, 
I don't think Congress can call a special election. They would still have to go through whatever process to like impeach him, remove him. They'd have to, they'd have to impeach him. And, and then the Speaker of the House would then become, you know, or, or his vice president, if he'd chosen one, become president. Yeah, so, the, legal, the legal issues there got a little hinky. That's, uh, that's why, that's why uh, I mentioned my flaws early on in our, in our podcast here. Um, is this so the the ambiguous ending how is this how you want it to end because i think as a show it makes total sense it's completely appropriate as a person i think that whenever you're giving a given an ambiguous ending it's like a choose your own adventure and in my mind i I know if I was, if I had to write an ending, the ending I would write is that FDR loses again. If I want to enjoy a story the way it's given to me, it's that FDR wins. So I'm happy to hear that in the book, FDR wins. Yeah, I, I mean, because I, I grew to really love these characters after, you know, six hours, I wanted things to work out better for them. Um, and, you know, like uh, going back to uh, a little bit more of a normal era uh, with FDR as president um, would kind of uh, kind of help them. But um, it'd be interesting if they kind of, I don't know if the book does this, but uh, it'd be interesting if the show had acknowledged, well, what does this mean for Japanese Americans in the United States? Because yeah, assume that with Lindbergh as president, because we didn't get into war with Japan, Japanese citizens aren't going to uh, intern camp, internment camps, um, you know, but with FDR as president, they are. And while Jewish Americans feel a little bit safer, Japanese Americans certainly don't. Yeah, that's a unfortunate thing about the nature of storytelling is that when you go, I've got this big bad villain and then you set up everything against the big bad villain as being good then if the good wins, you feel like you, you, the, the story is a lot neater. Oh, gosh, well, thank God this family is safe. Fuck all the families, like, you know, that got ruined by FDR's presidency. Or, you know, it's hard, it's hard to not watch this story and, you know, wonder, like, if there was a more anti-war sentiment, maybe we wouldn't have entered, if, you know, Maybe if, if uh, Japan hadn't attacked the U.S., you know, we wouldn't have entered and what the world would look like. I yeah. think that that, that that line, that political line by Lindbergh, that it's not a vote of FDR versus Lindbergh. It's a vote of Lindbergh versus war. Was It's a very yeah. effective political one. It's um, a very effective yeah. the, the The last thing I want to talk about is the crazy conspiracy theory. Oh, I yeah. do want to talk so Charles Lindbergh's plane goes down. Suddenly there pops up this conspiracy theory that it's the, the Jews in America and the British intelligence that uh, downed his plane, which we don't know if that's true, but we do see some evidence that makes it seem like there's something to that. So the American public believing it isn't necessarily wrong. But then there comes a crazier conspiracy theory, which is that Charles Lindbergh's baby uh, wasn't killed 
like we thought it was. Instead, he was taken hostage by Nazis, and there was a very long plan to establish a popular political figure who would be a puppet of the Nazis, would do everything the Third Reich commanded. And this was shopped right. around by uh, the rabbi, especially as he tries to defend, you know, his prior defense of Lindbergh and his role in, you know, trying to lead Jews to support him. What do you think of that conspiracy theory? Like, is that, did, I don't, did you, is that in the book? I'm sure it is, but is that right in the book or is it, is it left as a theory? I don't know. Cause I haven't read the book. I only know the ending of the book. Um, uh, okay. You, you fucking sneaky bastard. I thought you were well-read. Uh, no, just well-bred. Um, Gross. All right. This is still a gay, this is still a gay podcast. Gotta, gotta put that in. Um, it's a funny conspiracy theory because I was just thinking about, you know, the people who, who firmly believe that there's a P-tape of Donald Trump. And that's the reason why um, uh, he has such fealty to, to Vladimir Putin. Uh, when Occam's razor says there's a variety of other reasons why he does, and it could be business holdings in Russia. He's clearly attracted to uh, strongman authoritarian types, you know, um, and how uh, Putin has been able to crush dissent in, in Russia. Um, but, you know, there are people who like firmly believe, people we know who firmly believe there's a P-tape. And so I think the, the, you know, the Lindbergh baby being, you know, a hostage in Nazi Germany while, uh, you know, Hitler has a puppet in America, I could see if, if we were transported back to 1940 in this, in this show, some of our friends would believe that. Um, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. If Charles Lindbergh's son, who was kidnapped, was Donald Trump Jr., Donald Trump would not be beholden to the Nazis. He would... He would not give a shit if any of his actual kids were kidnapped unless it was, you know, Ivanka. Yeah, yeah. All the rest of them. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to work for you. I don't care about that child. Well, that's why it's the P-tape is the analogy here. It's not about his children. It's about his ego uh, and uh, his, the facade that he tries to put up uh, of, um, you know, being, you know, kind of a, you know, alpha male. And, you know, you know, something like that would definitely denigrate him as a, as a cuck or a beta male. So uh, I did think it was really interesting. It kind of goes back to the conversation we had about tokenism uh, with the rabbi. And he so firmly believes this um, just to sort of redeem himself with uh, his, his entire uh, congregation at the synagogue. Um, and even so, I love that scene where they were like, they, they didn't show us anymore that the, like, the congregants were like, Stop. And then the scene just sort of like yeah. goes there. If they've had enough of his bullshit. Um, but the tokenism stuff was done so well. I actually think it would have been kind of interesting, and I don't know, it might have been a little too modern if you had found made a character who was Jewish uh, and knew for a fact that Lindbergh was working against uh, Jewish Americans, yet still did it for financial gain because the ones that you saw were being, um, you know, sort of like Limber is not so bad, you know, we can work with them, were true believers. 
I think finding yeah. a cynical character would have been interesting. I, I think of like, you know, the diamond and silk types uh, and Candace Owens, uh, you know, in, in, in our culture, who clearly know that Donald Trump is a racist piece of shit, but they've decided to monetize it because they are right. token conservative African-Americans. You know, you see that in yeah, the gay community. Playing the game. Yeah, they're playing the game. Um, uh, it's Tessa Thompson's character in, uh, in Dear, uh, Dear White People. Um, it's like, you know, I decided to monetize this. You know, um, I think it would have been interesting if there had been a uh, character like that, but I also kind of wonder if it would have been too anachronistic and too modern. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think that, char that character type is too anachronistic. I think there are people historically who recognize, you know, you, you read about people in history all the time who they, they just swallow their tongue when people are particularly odious to make a buck. So, yeah. All right. Well, so in the last second, uh, Kaylin, how would you rate the show? Um, I'd give it a 9.5 out of 10. I thought it was really well done. Um, I think it was um, incredibly smart, structured very well. The acting is phenomenal and it really creates a sense of dread by using very mundane, uh, mundane setting. Um, my only problems with it are the ones I mentioned about sort of the sped up uh, resolution uh, with uh, Anne uh, Lindbergh coming out of the, you know, the, the asylum and then the election being rescheduled for the midterms. It was just, it seemed a little far-fetched, but that's <laughs> good overall. Really, really I'd probably, good. I'd probably do an A minus, yeah. Mostly that that last episode, the the rushing of it and the the actual it's it's hard to get over. Given how much we're talking about now, Donald Trump, uh, what would happen if he died, or you know the line of succession changed, or you know whatever the uh, the election was postponed. That it's hard to not know. Uh, <laughs> you can't just schedule an election for the midterm. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, we've been Homo Superior. This has been a secret records. Uh, find us on Twitter at Homo Superior uh, X and on Instagram as Homo Superior. Listen to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and of course, iTunes. We'll be talking to you soon. Bye.